You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. Jose, where art thou, Jose? He's not here, guys. He's not here. I feel like I'm missing a limb right now, but it's okay. Have no fear. I've got not one, but two podcast hosts slash guests that are joining me today. And before I introduce who they are, welcome aviation nerds to this week's episode of the Forever on the Fly podcast, your bi-weekly dose of aviation, inspiration, education, and you got it, entertainment. My name is Diane. I'm your host today, and I have with me John Gray and Jeff Ratkovich, hosts of the Hangar Z podcast, which is a fantastic podcast dedicated to public safety aviation. And not going to lie, guys, not going to lie, a little bit of a heavier episode than what we're used to here on the Forever on the Fly podcast. But we're here to talk about some important subjects like mental health and aviation, just culture, and the importance of companies having open door policies. You know, I've never been in public safety aviation or worked for a law enforcement agency or department, so I have no idea how they're run, the positives, the negatives, which Jeff and John are here to share with us today. I learned so much from this conversation. I know you guys at home will too. So stick around. We're going to be sparking some positive conversations about how we can change this industry for the better. I'm here for it. Let's go. The Hangar Z Podcast. Institute some change in that industry. Awareness of the issue of a lack of leadership in airborne law enforcement that exists. Hey, I'm John Gray. And I'm Jeff Radkovich, host of the Hangar Z Podcast. And, and we're, we're forever, forever on the fly. All right, John Gray and Jeff Radkovich. What's up, guys? What's up? Hey, Hi. What's up, Diane? <laughs> uh, you know, nothing much. Just drinking my uh, dragon's milk bourbon right. barrel aged stout. What do you guys got over there? Uh, I'm not drinking water tonight. Uh, <laughs> what? I'm what? Uh, well. I'm off. I'm off work tonight. <laughs> so, uh, so I got this bottle. It's uh, Papa's Pilar Pillar. I don't know. Anyway, Ernest Hemingway uh, rum, spiced rum. It was actually a gift. Uh, my old partner, his uh, uncle, uh, a couple years ago, we took him up for a, a ride in the uh, helicopter, and uh, he sent this gift over, uh, this bottle. It's actually really cool because it's like in a in a Pelican case that he makes, uh, the company oh, that cool. he oh, cool. owns. And so it's like, it's got the two tumblers, the bottle, it's all cut out in the foam and and yeah so i can walk around like you know <laughs> i've got the the football like you know working for the president or something but i've just got a bottle of rum in there <laughs> just business and documents that's all no, nothing to see no, here business i'm a yeah, business person right. i'm yeah. a businessman <laughs> right. i'm walking around doing yeah. business things <laughs> looks, like tool, looks like i got a tool or something like a very important person like <laughs> <laughs> right. so that's yeah cool. this is i've just got my alcohol <laughs> that's probably what most business people have in their briefcases anyways. So that's right. You know, you're probably just doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. So I listened to one of your episodes today. I saw this, you know, you're do it in honor of somebody with your with your drink. So what do you guys drink? Who are you guys drinking to today? Gosh, that's a good question. Jeff, I'll let you go so I can think about it. I'm trying to think of uh you know what? I'm gonna drink to uh Officer Ryan Bonaminio. Actually, he was killed uh, November uh, 
November 7th of 2010. He was a Riverside police officer. And uh, we actually, not to bring it down or anything, but uh, we went to the police academy, uh, not together. He was in my junior class, but then I was working the night he was killed. So uh, in honor of Ryan, I'll drink to him. All yeah, right. Cheers. Cheers Ryan. to Ryan. I remember that incident like it was yesterday, you know. Yep. Um, for me, uh, Jerry McKay, he was a deputy with the San Diego County Sheriff's and uh, grew up with, with him, actually. Went to high school with them, uh, same youth group at church, and uh, he was killed during the, the Dorner incident. And uh, you know, that was definitely a, a tra- tragic incident we've talked about a few times during our podcast. But cheers to Jer and his family. Uh, we're still thinking about you, pal. Yeah. All cheers right. Jeremy. That's a really beautiful tradition, you guys. Yeah, you know, mm. um, it's some of this stuff kind of evolves kind of naturally and other times not, but um, it's been kind of a fun part, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm sorry for both of your losses. Yeah, unfortunately in law enforcement or, or public safety in general. You sure. Know, it's just this kind of part of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm just listening. being in, in aviation and in general, it's something yeah. that we have to deal with, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. And the longer that you're in this industry, the smaller it gets, the more people you you know. And, you know, it's one degree separation, especially on yeah. the helicopter yeah. side of things. And mental health is always a good topic to talk about with, with things like this. I'm sure we all have to deal with this type of tragic things happening in our industry. So I always like to... Actually, I don't know if we've really talked a lot about mental health on our podcast before. We like to keep things light, obviously. Yeah, of <laughs> um, we brought it down right away. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's important to to talk about those things. On the mental health, uh, you know, going down that rabbit hole, um, you know, I think one of the things that law enforcement does, at least I know our agency, I'm sure John's, um, most of the agencies in Southern California if you're involved in a critical incident, you know, officer involved death or, or even a, a suspect, you know, you're involved in the shooting or any kind of officer involved death, uh, you know, somebody dies at the hands of an officer, um, our department and most departments in Southern California send our officers to a retreat. It's up in the mountains up by, I think it's up by your neck it's of the woods me, yeah. there, John. Yeah. The UCLA, uh, mountain, I don't know, retreat. And uh, the counseling team international, they send people up there and, and you spend a couple of days up there with other officers that have been involved in, in officer involved deaths. And, uh, you know, it's I think it's, um, you know, coming out of the military where, you know, when we left Iraq, it was like, you know, here, get on this little um, PDF or PDA, sorry, uh, and, you know, check the boxes. Did you kill someone? Did you fire your weapon? You know, those kind of things. And everybody goes, no, 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 because they don't want to have to talk to the shrink when they get back and they don't want to be delayed, you know, getting home to their families. Um, our department, it, they don't do it right away. You don't, you know, right after an incident, head up to the mountains, they give you some time, you know, obviously you go see the uh, counselor before you go back to work. But after, you know, a time period, they send you up to this retreat where, you know, you talk about how it affected you, how it t- affected your family, um, you know, any negative effects, any positive effects, um, and kind of get your feel of it. And you're surrounded by other people that have been involved in these types of incidents. So, uh, you one realize that you're not alone, um, and you're able to, you know, talk about those things. And, 
I'll tell you, it's, I think it's a huge improvement, um, you know, in mental health, uh, you know, just for law enforcement officers. And again, I think it's something that, uh, you know, in, in, uh, aviation, you know, we, we go get our medicals every year, every six months, whatever it is, if you're a commercial or, you know, ATP and, you know, there's people that, uh, you know, obviously medications that maybe people need to take to stabilize their mood or whatever the case is, they're not able to do, take those because it's disqualifying on the mm-hmm. FAA side of things. But if people are managed just like diabetes or, or, you know, any other, you know, medical condition, why can't somebody go out and get the help that they need and have somebody that's, you know, mentally fit, capable, ready to go, uh, flying aircraft as opposed to somebody that's, you know, hiding something because they want to keep their medical. And I think that's something that the FAA needs to address. I think it's something that, you know, needs to kind of move into that, into that sector, into the aviation sector. Cause I think it's a huge thing. I've seen some comments lately, even on the FAA, you know, website or Facebook page, uh, you know, they're doing a lot of outreach for the hot topics right now, but they're not addressing those kind of issues that I think, you know, the FAA should really take into consideration and that's what they're there for. And, uh, you know, because like you said, it it doesn't take long to be in this industry before you're affected by somebody that was, you know, killed doing what we do. And, uh, you know, people need to be able to, to process that and, and move forward. So I think it's something that's critically important in our, in our line of work. It seems like the conversation's coming up more and more in, in the circle, you know, mm-hmm. I think just in the last six months, I've heard it more than I had in the last 10, you know, so at least that's a good, that's a positive traction. Maybe it, it may not be in the, in the you know forefront of legislation and stuff yet, but uh, at least the conversation's beginning and, and hopefully it continues to happen mm-hmm. and, and steps are, are made to, to, to write that ship. In my experience, it's kind of come down to, management and the chief pilot to address, you know, line pilots if something were to happen and ask people individually if they wanted to seek counseling or not. And typically it seems that companies are pretty supportive of helping with that if that's something that they need. Uh, I've never heard of anything like a civilian retreat or anything that is geared towards pilots who have experienced loss in this industry. And I think that's really amazing that that your departments were offering that up because that's one recognizing that uh, you need a support system yeah. and having that is so critically important, but you're right. I, I do think that this conversation is starting to definitely pop up a lot more, but that fear of going to the AME or that fear of seeking help uh, depending on what people are going on through at home, like not just, dealing with critical accidents uh, or incidents, but people deal with mental health in their personal lives. But I know a lot of pilots who are afraid to admit that they have depression or anxiety or any of these very common um, things because they're afraid of losing their medical over it. Right. And that sucks. That sucks. And pilots are people too. We should start a campaign. (laughs) (laughs) Pilots are people too. We're human. We experience the same emotions that everyone else does. There's this uh, kind of unreasonable expectation of perfection and mental perfection in our work. So definitely I think it's something that needs to be continually talked about and brought up to the FA on the legislation side. 
So uh, I think well, it I know when I get on an airliner, I want to make sure that you know those pilots that are up there are you know they're not dealing with something at home. They're not dealing with you know a, a recent death in the family. A lot of us can manage that kind of stuff. We can you know compartmentalize it, but at the same time, you know there's there are some you know, like you talked about, you know, depression, if, if it's something that's chronic that, you know, somebody has been dealing with, with a long time, you know, they find other coping mechanisms, alcohol, you know, these things that, that they, you know, take part in. And we've seen it. I mean, we, I worked at America West airlines back in the day when, you know, one of our pilots was stopped, you know, getting ready to board an airplane and, you know, was under the influence. Do you have Pelican uh, you know, so, uh, I don't know, but I'll <laughs> plead the fifth on that one. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's true. I mean, that yeah. kind of stuff happens in the industry. It's happened for years. And, you know, they're, they're, obviously there's there's a reason for it. And, you know, just because somebody has an alcohol problem or any other addiction, it's not necessarily, you know, uh, I don't want to say it's not their fault, but, you know, we need to get them the help and, you know, obviously a guy that's flying an, an Airbus or, you know, any kind of, you know, airliner is more than qualified to do that. There's obviously been something that's triggered that and we need to get them that help and not make it such a stigma that, you know, oh, if you have this problem, you know, you, you just can't be a pilot. That's, I think that's not, I think it's, I don't think it's fair um, to or, expect Or that. healthy. Right. It's not just not fair. It's creating an unsafe space for people to talk about their mental health. There needs to be a safe space created around the industry where people will not have that fear anymore. Hundred percent. On, on the same note, on the physical side of things too, you know, we all go get our annual physicals for our medical, but how many of us actually go and get screened for you know all these different health conditions like cancer and all these other things that are important because you don't want something to come up, right? Like if your blood work comes back and there's a problem, like, well, now I can't fly and I can't get paid and I can't provide for, you know, all the bills I have and the family I've got. And that's a problem too. And mm-hmm. I, I actually heard a podcast recently t- talking about that same issue. And, and that's important as well. I don't know what the solution is on, on either of those ends, but I think it's something that we need to consider, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Well, this took an unexpected turn. I wasn't sure what we were going <laughs> to chat about, but uh, this actually this, this is Jose's fault. <laughs> I told you the funny one isn't here, so <laughs> we had to go a different direction. But uh, de- definitely a good conversation to have. Thank you guys for sharing your experiences with that and um, and your thoughts. So I appreciate you. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, thanks for having us on. I listening to your podcast. I think we both have a lot of the same uh, uh, missions, I guess, if you will, in mind. Uh, so it's it's really cool to, to chat and, and kind of mix it up in the in the civilian world. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, everybody, Jose was unable to make it due to technical internet difficulties. <laughs> uh, your bills, sadly. Jose. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about you guys. I, I have your resumes out here in front of me. So interview time. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so you guys both have an extensive experience in law enforcement. Uh, let's see, John, you fly still for the city of Ontario police department. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And Jeffrey, you are now working for Arivac. Yes. What made you switch to the civilian side of things? Uh, I moved across country. I moved from Southern California to Tennessee. Um, Pull up a chair. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how deep you want to get on this. Uh, yeah. So um, super deep. Yeah. I was, uh, there were some issues that we had in, in Riverside at the police department and the aviation unit. Uh, and it, it came to a head a couple years ago. Um, and it, I think you had asked, uh, when you sent out the, your questionnaire to us, uh, you know, issues that you'd like to talk about. Um, and, you know, something that's big for me is leadership, leadership in law enforcement aviation. Generally, what happens in and what we found doing our podcast, talking to, you know, guys in, in that industry is there's a lack of leadership knowledge on aviation. And, you know, when, of course, this is before the podcast, but when I was in our aviation unit, I assumed that it was just a problem with our department, with our, you know, leadership not seeing the value of aviation and and the uniqueness of having, you know, leadership that understood aviation. Uh, you know, it came to a point where um, our department was making pretty bad personnel selections into the aviation unit, people that, you know, shouldn't have been there, people that shouldn't have been in positions that they were in. Uh, and it led to, um, a really poor morale problem. Um, I finally had had enough and coming from army aviation where, you know, you're told that, you know, if you see a problem, you need to speak up, you need to be the person that brings it up, uh, to bringing it up. And then, you know, basically, uh, kind of making a target out of myself for, for bringing it up. Uh, I decided when all of that started that, you know what? this isn't worth it anymore. And, um, I had already been considering for a couple of years, leaving California, getting out of California for different reasons. Um, mainly, you know, taxes and, and the soft approach on crime that, that we were seeing in law enforcement, there was a lack of quality of life, I guess, so to speak. It's My expensive. wife and I have been considering <laughs> moving out of California for a couple of years and we had had our eye on moving to Tennessee and so when all of this stuff kind of dropped at the police department, I was like, well, um, you know, one of the things that I've always kind of said is like, I need a sign when it's right to, to leave, when it's right to, you know, make that move. And that was the sign. I took it as a sign. That's when I decided I'm going to make that shift. And so, you know, of course, looking at Tennessee and, you know, what was available uh, at the time when we moved out here, it was the height of COVID. Uh and Air Evac was hiring. They have 14 bases in the state of Tennessee. And uh, so it was a pretty easy transition uh, to come over to, you know, flying EMS. And uh, so far, I've loved every minute of it. I love what I do. Um, and, you know, the people that I work with are amazing. And it's been a, a huge um, shift in, in, you know, my mental health, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. uh, just working with really positive people, um, you know, people that really care about what they're doing and about the mission. Um, one of the things you find in, in government employment is that uh, there's protections that are in place uh, that, you know, tend to keep people that probably shouldn't be in that line of work in that line of work. Yep. Um, and, you know, that was really frustrating for me to see that, to see people that were, you know, lazy or, or, you know, didn't care about what they were doing. Um, and so that was, you know, not to again, bring it down, but, but that was really my Thanks a lot, Joe. Yeah. So <laughs> John excluded, but uh, no, but there's, um, and so then when John asked me to, you know, 
come over to the podcast, that you know, that was uh, an eye opener for me. Interviewing people from all over our, our this you know the airborne law enforcement industry to find out that Riverside wasn't a unique you know in a unique situation. Position. There's a lot of mm-hmm. agencies that that have those issues, and so that. I guess, um, you know, we talked about it already, but, you know, finding out that there's other people going through the same, you know, issue that you're going through, it was kind of cathartic, I guess, for me. But at the same time, it, I realized that we have this platform now that we can hopefully institute some change in that industry, you know, bring it to awareness of the issue of a lack of leadership in airborne law enforcement that exists kind of industry wide. And it's not really a lack of leadership per se, but more of a lack of knowledge of the leadership to understand, you know, the uniqueness of an aviation unit. You know, you can put a no law enforcement leadership in, in their right mind would be like, hey, we're just going to take this patrol guy that knows nothing about SWAT and we're going to put him in charge of the SWAT team. But right. they'll do it all the time in an aviation unit. And, you know, that's, I think, a discredit to the aviation unit. I think it's I don't think it's safe. I don't think it's um, effective. And that's what we've seen. Uh, and talking to other guys in the industry, it happens quite a bit. So we're hoping that, uh, you know, through this medium that we can maybe institute some some positive change in that direction. So you'll have a leader, someone who's in charge of the aviation department who might not even be a pilot, kind of like shooting the, making calls and telling people what to do. Oh, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. Like you would think, right. you know, the, the guy in charge of the aviation department at a law enforcement agency would at least be a pilot and have some base knowledge about what they're talking about. A Sorry, lot of ahead. agencies, you know, there, there are agencies that do have that. There are agencies that, you know, might have a, a lieutenant or a captain or something that's, you know, not necessarily an aviator, but they'll have a chief pilot. They'll have somebody that's, you know, from an aviation background that's in charge of the operation of mm-hmm. some sort of, you know, in charge of some part of the operation. And then there's agencies like Riverside where, you know, the only guys that are aviators are the pilots assigned to the unit. And then they have a sergeant and a lieutenant that, you know, they report to that have no aviation experience whatsoever. And that is a huge hurdle to get over when you're trying to explain why it's important to do, you know, or not do quarterly, quarterly <laughs> emergency procedures yeah. or, oh, right. Sure. Or, you know, when you, when you have to turn down a flight because yeah. of weather or whatever it is, trying to explain that to them. And that's just a small part of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, we're talking about, you know, why it's important to get, you know, training when I have to go qualify with a handgun every other month or a shotgun or, you know, whatever. I realize that's important because I am a, I'm a police officer and that's, part of my job as well. But what they don't get is that we're also professional helicopter pilots and we need to maintain that training and and that experience. And honestly, that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, sending us to do, you know, recurrent, you know, police intervention, you know, or uh, pursuit intervention techniques, pit maneuvers, where we never do that in the air with something that we see on the ground. Um, I get it. Like we should understand that because we might have to help coordinate an -hmm. event like that on the ground. So it is good to have that experience, but at the same time, you know, we need to go out and do, you know, it's why it's important to go to mountain training or it's why it's important to go to, you know, inadvertent IMC training command staff. That's never been in an aircraft doesn't understand. Well, just don't fly in the clouds. Well, it's not that simple, you know, and, and we as aviators understand that, 
but trying to get them to buy off on, Hey, we need this training. Can we, can we send guys to this course? Well, it's expensive and we don't want to spend money. money. Right. Budget, money. And again, you know, you, you ball up one helicopter and and kill a crew or, you know, kill innocent people on the ground. It's worth it. So I think that's educating them to understand and think in that, that way is, is the difficult part. Man, you really had to fight for training. That's crazy. We were trying to push to get night vision goggles. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people were like, well, why do you need night vision goggles? You know, you're flying over a city and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, where we were, where John and I both, you know, work or worked is, yeah, the right over the city. Sure, you've got lots of lights and everything else. But anybody that's flown night vision goggles knows that, you know, once you put on night, you know, NVGs, that dark, you know, feel that you can't see what's in there under the naked eye. Now you can see that it's a, a baseball field and it's a, or a football mm-hmm. field and it's a perfect spot to put an aircraft down if you have an emergency or, or need to make a precautionary landing. Sure. You know, but without it, it could be, you know, uh, an olive or, or a, uh, you know, orange grove or something like that where you don't necessarily want to put the aircraft down into. I did like a six hour in VG course and I got to fly in Sedona and they, ha- we did the oh, goggle cool. failing thing and yep, failed the goggles, couldn't see jack squat it was pitch black just absolutely nothing and as soon as you turn them back on there are cliffs on both sides of you have red rocks and you know 100 percent. if i didn't have goggles on i would have crashed right into them if i wasn't paying attention you just can't put a price on that kind of safety especially doing the job that law enforcement is doing you guys are flying low level in wiry environments california is not flat, you know, and most of the time you guys are flying again, low level in these hilly, rocky environments where you need to know if you have an emergency, you're in single engine, you need to know where you can put that aircraft down safely if you have a problem. And typically in law enforcement, you guys are lower time pilots right off the bat. You go from being a patrol officer to going through school to boom, now you're getting thrown into these crazy congested, very multifaceted environments doing the jobs that you guys are doing out there. So the risk mitigation needs to be there. What can departments do to mitigate that risk? Night vision goggles, like you mentioned, that'd be a great way. Um, You know, one of the things I always said was, hey, how about I take whoever's making the decision on this, I'll take them up into the Cajon Pass at night without night vision goggles on and let them, you know, fly them up there in that black hole and then turn around and go, okay, now put the night vision goggles on and now let's come back down the cone pass and you can see all the wires and all the terrain and all this kind of stuff. And I think they would immediately Understand. write a check for, for that, you know, piece of equipment. So, um, a lot of times it's, oh, well, the pilots are whining because they want this or, you know, the pilots are whining because they want that. My, my experience <laughs> in my department's much better. We have a, yeah. a unit sergeant who's required to be a commercial pilot. So we have a different set of circumstances, and it's been great. Um, the MVG thing isn't an issue for us. Training is not an issue most of the time. The sergeant's job then is to sell and fly our flag to the administrators above him, which is a hard job for him sometimes. But a lot of those problems that, that, that Jeff's talking about, we don't necessarily experience all of them. Mm-hmm. So if for, for me, it's been great. You know, and on, on the safety side, there's a bunch of requirements that we have to go through before we're able to fly as a you know, PIC without a, another pilot on board. Um, so, Do you guys normally fly with two pilots? No. For our, our agency, it's usually a pilot and a 
call it tactical flight officer or the observer. Um, when you're new, though, as a new pilot, you're going to fly with another 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 commercial pilot who's either a, a CFI or a higher time pilot. Um, so we're we're been, we're lucky in that in that sense. Yeah, um, our nice. department does a good job of vetting people before they get to that position. I think all most agencies do. Law enforcement aviation is such a niche, small group that typically the people that are being selected for those spots are really high caliber people. Sure. Um, so the vetting process is very long and intensive, um, but it's been great. You know, I, I love my agency and, and what we do. Our area of operations kind of unique. Like Jeff was talking about, we're in this, we're about 35 miles East of Los Angeles in the Inland Empire. So we have a lot of congested airspace around us. We operate in a class Charlie airspace. <clears throat> We've got mountains all around us for the most part. Mm-hmm. So while you're operating in the city itself, there's plenty of visibility at nighttime. But as soon as you get you know, outside of the confines of, of the city, you've got these huge mountains and uh, these passes. If, if you're going north into the desert or going south towards San Diego, these really dark spaces. So MVGs are definitely a requirement in those areas. And if you don't have the support of your administration to to uh, provide those, those, those items for you, it, it's no good, you know. But yeah, our, our experience has been great. One of the times with um, city leadership, we've had, you know, we had uh, a city council member that was, you know, like, well, why do we need a helicopter and why do we need this? And, and so we invited him out and said, hey, come out and fly with us. And we took him up and we, you know, he flew. He asked to come back the next day. He was so interested in what we were doing and how we were doing it. And to see us do a low jack recovery where we recovered a stolen vehicle that was in a backyard, you know, it was just something that popped up while we were up. And, you know, next thing you know, we're, we're orbiting this, this house and we're like, Hey, we got the stolen vehicle. It's back here. And for him to see that value so quickly, he became a huge fan of the air unit just, Mm -hmm. you know, overnight. Um, A lot of times it's, it's trying to get the, the decision makers to come out and actually see what the aviation unit does because a lot of it, and I've talked about it in our podcast before when it comes to social media is we've never done a, most units have never done a good job of advertising what we do on a daily basis. A lot of it is not worthy of a, of a press release or, you know, get the media involved, but now we have this platform, we have these social media, you know, accounts that we can, project that we can show people, Hey, this is what your money's going to. And we started doing that in Riverside and we had huge community support because of that. And, and that's really, I mean, you know, you, you have to do it through all, all the ranks. I mean, all the way down from the chief and, and all the decision makers up at the city. And so it really takes a lot of, of, you know, publicizing what you're doing. Yeah. And that's uh, social media is still something that aviation is way behind on in the first place. A lot of companies don't like social media or they don't understand right, right. it or the people who are in charge are a little behind the times <laughs> and, and they, they just don't understand it and they don't understand the value in it. But now that younger generations are moving into leadership positions, it's starting to become more widely accepted in the industry, but it's definitely taken some time. So John, I know Jeff mentioned earlier, we kind of hit on just culture for a little bit, but I kind of want to go back and talk more about it. Do you feel that your department does a really good job at creating a safe space for pilots to come forward when they see something to say something without fear of being reprimanded or losing their job? Yeah. So there's, there's two different areas. I, I, I think to talk on, on that one is the area of, uh, of accidents. So anytime, 
there's an accident in aviation, whether it's a scratch to a, a rotor blade or you know something bigger than that, you're looking at some high value, some very costly accidents, right? Um, so our department's done a really good job of creating a culture that encourages people to be like, hey, I just did this, you know, whatever the thing is. I, I, I scratched the rotor blade doing something because you'd hate to be the guy who didn't want to say I did this out of fear of reprisal. And then the next guy goes up and has a failure of some sort and loses his life over it. So in that sense, it's been great. Um, politically, I think every agency is different. You know, if you speak up politically against, you know, whoever your supervisor is or, or even some of your coworkers, if they're the wrong person, it's detrimental to your career. And I think that is kind of prevalent through even the, the civilian world. You know, it's just the way we as people are, are political, you know, but overall, I think our culture is, is one that, at least in my department, um, encourages integrity and and speaking up on issues that create an issue uh, cre- creates a problem for the overall agency. When we're yeah, off think- camera, you can tell me the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just uh, kidding. Even at Riverside, I mean, we had you know I had my share of incidents. We all did, you know, as new pilots, uh, where you know you come in and and be like, Hey, this happened. I screwed up. And, uh, you know, you still had a job, you know, if it wasn't done out of, you know, just sheer, you know, complete, you know, buffoonery. Uh, buffoonery. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, and so I never felt, uh, I felt like we had a just culture in, in that regard. Um, I think where we, where we lacked was again on the political side of, of, you know, making bad decisions, you bring it to light and then, you know, then it starts a bunch of finger pointing and, and that resulted in the reason why I left was the, the finger pointing that was being done. Um, I brought up legitimate concerns on, on a part of the entire unit because at the time I was the, the senior guy in the unit and I felt like it was, you know, my place to, you know, bring it to light to, to let the, you know, upper leadership know that, Hey, this is what's going on. And, you know, obviously it ruffled some feathers and and it caused a lot of drama. Uh, and I felt like by me leaving that, you know, that was the best course of action. Um, you know, I waited until everything had settled and, you know, um, I still had my job. I was, you know, still, uh, employed there as, as a pilot and, but it, it got ugly for a while. And, you know, talking about stress and, and things that, you know, add to that, that was a lot of stress that, you know, I went through, uh, you know, and my family and, and everything, because, you know, you're under a microscope at that point mm-hmm. while they figure out like, okay, well, what's the real story here? And, and, you know, let's sift through this. And so, you know, we went through a, a really long internal investigation as to, you know, what the, what the true nature of this was. And then at the end of it, you know, I was still there, but uh, I had made the decision uh, beforehand, you know, when this all started that like, you know what, if, if I can't raise my concerns and, and speak the truth of, Hey, this is not right. And, and then get thrown into a, a you know, a major, you know, debacle like that, then this isn't the place that I want to work. And, sure. um, you know, since I've left, uh, you know, I've seen, and and not because of this incident, but just because I think of the the trend of how things are going in California. But, uh, you know, when I left, it was like, it was unheard of for people to leave early, like, you know, on, on their own accord. Uh, 
but now I've seen and heard that, you know, there's other people that are leaving, not necessarily the air unit. I'm, there's somebody in the air unit that's leaving, but, uh, just officers in general, leaving law enforcement in California because it's just not a, a, a place that people want to work anymore. And that's really sad because law enforcement in California has always been kind of, you know, put on a pedestal. Like, you know, this is, you know, we've always been kind of the, the, the leaders in, in law enforcement in, in the United States. Um, you know, uh, most of the, most agencies in California have a really long training program, uh, longer than most, you know, states. Um, I think that, uh, you know, California has done a really good job of, of, uh, developing, you know, training and, and setting a standard that a lot of agencies across the country tend to follow. Um, and, and, for, and people get paid well in California, police and firemen and, uh, guys are walking away from the job right now. And that really should be concerning to the citizens, citizens of California. Why is this happening? And it's happening because of politics. It's happening because they're taking a soft approach to crime uh, you know, we used to get in vehicle pursuits all the time and, you know, uh, chasing bad guys all the time. And my fear for guys that are still in that job in airborne law enforcement, specifically in these states that are taking a soft approach to crime is, well, why do we need a helicopter if we're not chasing people anymore? And that seems to be happening more and more. Um, you know, there is an argument to say, well, we're not chasing them on the ground, but we can still chase them from the air. But, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the reason why a lot of us got into this job is going away. Um, you know, chasing criminals and putting them in jail is really why we sign on the line to do that job in the first place. And when you start taking that away and you see that, you know, by the time, you know, you, but even before you get off shift, the person that just led you on this hellacious pursuit through several different cities and everything else is walking out the back door of the jail with a ticket and you're not even home and going to bed yet. That, that is something that it becomes, you know, kind of a, a bummer for guys that are in the job. I think we've seen a lot of the success of a public safety, public safety aviation comes from units, not just in, in law enforcement aviation in, in general, but you know, the, the sheriff's departments who are really good at, at being, you know, law enforcement aviation, mm-hmm. they're doing search and rescue missions. They're doing firefighting missions become this, this multi-use platform. And for us, you know, we, we don't do those missions, but we've, become versatile and that we work with, uh, economic development. If, you know, we've got a lot of open space in the city or we used to. So we'd work with them. If there was a developer that was looking at a certain part of the city and they wanted to figure out, you know, if they wanted to move to our city, we'd be like, Hey, come for a flight. We'll take you up. We'll show you, you know, where your building is in relation to the rail systems, the airport, the freeways. Um, we worked with the fire department, you know, if there's a fire, a structured fire, we'll go up overhead and we'll talk to them and be like, Hey, you've got power lines down in the backyard, an empty pool, kind of point these hazards out yeah. to help in that way. So not just, uh, you, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. The more vers- the more versatile you become, the more mission profiles you can support, the easier it is to justify your existence. And then like Jeff said, you know, taking city council members up so they can understand exactly what it is we do and what value we provide is really important. And that comes back to the leadership side of things. You know, you want a leader, a leader on board who's willing to take those those uh, those steps and finds value in in taking those administrators and those leaders from out throughout the city and and the county up on flights to show them what we can do. You know, because it's it's pretty impressive. 
So how come some agencies get more involved with search and rescue or maybe even firefighting or other missions are become more versatile and then some agencies are just strictly law enforcement? Like who makes those decisions? I think for our city, you know, we're, we're a landlocked city. We don't have mountains uh, or, or a lot of wildland inter- interface in our city. So the need isn't really there for us just from a geographic standpoint. Um, whereas you look at the, the county sheriff and they've got mountains and desert and, you know, wide open spaces where there is a need for them to do that mission. Um, Riverside had has some mountains and some urban interface and, and a need for that stuff as well. So I think a lot of it just comes down to the the need for the job, you know, the need for the mission. And that's uh, defined through kind of the topography and, and whatnot of the city. And I think as well as the, you know, the county sheriffs in California are, are ultimately responsible for search and rescue in, in their counties. So I think, you know, most of the time you see that the sheriff's departments are the ones that are going to have the search and rescue assets. They're going to have even sometimes the firefighting assets. And it really just depends. And I think, you know, every County does it different. I mean, you can throw a dart at the map and, and, you know, every, every law enforcement agency in the country, you know, we do, we hire our personnel and train them differently. Um, The mission sets vary. Our department was very heavy in patrol and surveillance work. We, we had a narcotics task force that we flew or fly, flew, whatever, uh, support for. Um, so that was something that our agency did that some agencies don't do. They don't do covert surveillance. Um, and they leave it to, you know, other, other assets, whether it's uh, federal or state assets to do. Um, but we had a need for that. And so we had an airplane and we did, you know, uh, covert surveillance, um, which then that mission set, that airplane that trickled down to our patrol and we would go up and fly patrol over our city in our airplane, a Cessna 206. Every agency is just a little bit different. There's a little bit of a different flavor depending on, you know, what, what the agency is. And it depends on the size too. You know, LA County Sheriff's Department, they do everything, you know, they, you know, fixed wing, uh, transports and, and, uh, you know, doing inner, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, extraditions of, of, you know, prisoners from other States back to California. They do search and rescue obviously with rescue five. Uh, and then they do, you know, patrol work. And then there's agencies like LAPD that primarily do, uh, you know, patrol and surveillance work. And then they do have a fixed wing, uh, King air that they do, you know, some stuff with. And then there's some agencies that do only patrol work. And then there's other agencies that do a lot more in the search and rescue, you know, side of it. So it, like John said, it really just depends on where you are geographically. Of, and uh, Yeah. And then there's some police departments that do a little bit of everything. So it really just depends. But like I said, you can, you can look at any agency in airborne law enforcement and, and every agency does things just a little bit differently. We all kind of do the same stuff, but then at the same time, we all have a little bit different you know, flavor to what we're doing. So after everything that you went through with Riverside, did anything good come out of ruffling all those feathers or did it all kind of just fade away? Did you see any changes get made before you left or Uh, did you completely lose the battle? No, I I don't think, you know, change, especially with, with a, a government institution, it takes time. And, you know, I think they're, the command staff that's there, the chief of police is someone who I 
you know, Larry Gonzalez is someone who I highly respect. He was the lieutenant of the air unit when I was hired in back in 2011. Uh, he's now the chief of police. I think it takes time. I think it takes, you know, and, and I can't fault like the chief of police. I, I really can't. I had a great conversation with him before I left. Um, I think he knows that there's things that need to be changed. And, but at the same time, when you're the chief of police, you know, you've got a couple hundred other people running to you with their problems and, and things that they want and things that they need. And so I think it becomes a matter of, you know, is that on the back burner? Is it things are going to happen now? Things are going to happen later. It takes time for those changes to occur. It's not like an overnight, like, you know, we snap our fingers and, and everything's better. Um, I, I think they've, they've done a really good job of, personnel selections since I've left talking to the guys that are still there. Uh, so I think in that realm, they've, they've fixed that issue. Um, I think they've made some positive changes there. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think, you know, it's just going to take time for the, for those things to really play out and, and for those changes to occur. So, um, again, when I left there, I, I, I left on a good note. I felt good about, the things that we had accomplished as a unit. And, um, you know, I, I hold no ill will towards, you know, the command staff or the people that are there. Um, and they made the right changes, you know, in personnel at the time when all this occurred, uh, the people that were the bad actors are, are not there anymore by speaking up. Did I make a target of myself? I did. But at the same time, I, I helped to, you know, maybe move, you know, push that change that needed to happen. And so I was, I was happy for that. But at the same time, I, I was, you know, it, it took a lot out of me and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm good to move. And I'm glad I did. I mean, I'm, I'm in Tennessee. I love where I live. I love what I'm doing now. I love the people that I work with and, you know, I'm still doing something that, that adds value to my community. And, you know, that's always been a, a big thing ever since I was, you know, a kid or, you know, especially since I joined the military at 18 years old, um, doing something that, that, you know, is a bigger than myself. So I'm, I'm happy. I have no regrets. No regrets. And I can think, I can think, yeah, no regrets. Regrets. Um, yeah. I got it. I got it tattooed. Right um, the, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I think, um, you know, and I owe the city of Riverside, for the training that I received to get me to this point to where I'm at in my career with, sure. you know, the flight time that I have with, you know, the, the ratings that I have, uh, you know, so I, I'll never, um, you know, I can't, I can't downplay that enough. I mean, I was given huge opportunities and, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. And an incredibly brave thing to do when you're in a position where you know you're about to ruffle some feathers and make a target out of yourself, but you believe that what you have to say is important enough and changes need to be made that are important enough that you're willing to put yourself on the line to see those changes get made. And like that's what makes a great leader, <laughs> I mean, in yeah. my opinion, right? Like believing in something so much that you're willing to put yourself out there and be like, hey, this isn't right. Change needs to be made. This is unsafe. And unfortunately, that's the same across the board in aviation. For any changes to get implemented, they take so long until something terrible happens. 
right? They say all the regulations are written in blood. It's a real, it's a real thing. Like people don't pay attention until something terrible happens and they're like, oh, I guess we need to go back and look at the regulations here. What can we change to make this safer? Um, so kudos to you for, for putting yourself out there and speaking up for what you believe in. And get this thing off to a fun start. Where's <laughs> We've really dragged this thing around. <laughs> I think it's your fault, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but don't you, you know snitches get stitches? What's up? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to want to go in public safety aviation like, what? No, thank you. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, it sounds we're like... We're making positive change. We're making positive Positive. Positivity. Yeah. I mean... It sounds like to me, you ended up in a good spot. I've had so many experiences with some awful companies and awful management that, yes, they helped me get to where I am today. I'm glad I'm not there anymore. But (laughs) there was kind of like something that I had to go through in order to learn also what to look for in the next employer or the next job that I want. I learned a lot about what I didn't want through all of those experiences and what to look for in good leaders and, and good uh, aviation companies and kind of how they, how they operate. And, you know, I'm at the point in my career where I can make a pretty fair assessment and I know enough pilots that work enough places that I can get pretty accurate you know, uh, descriptions of what it's like to work for a certain company or what the leadership is like or the environment, um, the, if they have a just culture environment, but those are experiences that we have to go through, but sometimes they, one are there to teach us a lesson and two, to push us towards something that's way better for us. So I'm really happy that you found your place in Tennessee. Uh, going back, you you brought up, you know, the, the points we are in our careers, you know, we have some perspective, um, and we have some the ability to make some discernment based on our experience to decide, hey, I, I do or don't want to do this thing. But I think we we both started our podcast to help the people that don't have that discernment and don't know how to get into the industry. You know, sure. What has your experience been as a civilian trying to break into the industry? Um, well, you were there now, but when you were obviously a new pilot. Yeah, you know, I think that I got into it at the right time where the industry wasn't quite saturated like it used to be. So, yeah, there were still, you know, plenty of flight instructors also looking for jobs at the same time I was, but I didn't typically have that difficult of a time finding work when I was ready to go to the next step. But the only way that I got those jobs were through people I knew, knew and networking, yeah, which is something that we hit really hard on on our podcast is networking and talking to people who are doing the things that you want to do and going after the jobs that, that you want. So for me, it wasn't necessarily like a difficult thing to break into, more so just the years of sacrifice that you have to make when you're first starting out as a flight instructor, not making very much money and working really hard to build your flight time. During the summer, when the universities were not in session, I only had two students and one of them had a really bad learning disability. It was very, very difficult uh, to train him. And the other kid, the mother was suing the school. So he was under a super microscope. So I just had these two problematic students 
that uh, I couldn't even pay my rent because I was only getting paid $20 an hour to train two people who are both problematic students who sometimes could or couldn't come in. So it kind of forced me into a position where I had to look for other work. And what they kind of banged into our head throughout flight school was, you'll never get a job anywhere else. If you don't get hired by us, you're screwed. You know, we are the only way, blah, you know, and they made themselves out to be like the gods of the industry. And when you're, when you're a student, you don't know any better. You don't know that that's true or not, but I had a job within a month after quitting. So, (laughs) you know, it happened pretty, pretty quickly where they're like, oh yeah, we need, we need instructors desperately. Can you move here in two weeks? You know, it happened very, very quickly for me. Um, And then when I decided to, well, when I finally had the requirements that I could go to a part 135 tour operation, charter operation, I applied to, you know, Papillon and I only knew the chief of, or the training director through a friend of mine who I knew from flight school. So he connected me with him and then I sent him my resume and he put in a good word and bada bing, bada boom, got a call from the chief pilot. Can you come in tomorrow for an interview? So (laughs) that was so crazy. I'm at the pilot show because I was like, oh yeah, okay. Put in my, put in my resume. Maybe I'll hear from them in a week or two. Who knows if they're even going to call me. I remember I stood in line for over an hour at Heli Expo one year to talk to the chief pilot. But I mean, I wasn't even in a position to get that job yet. Wasn't expecting anything. And I was in the pilot shop kind of getting all updated materials. Like, man, I might have to go on an interview in a couple of weeks. So I should probably start studying up and get a call from the chief pilot. Hi, it's Simon Whiteley from <laughs> Happy on Helicopters. I'm like, oh, hello. Ch- hello. <laughs> you know? And uh, he's like, I-, I know this is really last minute, but can you come in tomorrow for an interview? And I'm in LA, the interview's in Vegas. I'm like, uh, I guess. And I- I'm going to have to take off work. My boyfriend at the time took off work as well and drove me out there so I could study in the car on the way so I could get prepared for like 135 questions and stuff. I wasn't really that well versed in yet. Uh, that was So that was pretty very spontaneously nerve wracking <laughs> situation that I was kind of thrown into, but it turned out well. I got the job and yeah, so my career kind of went, went from there. But over the last nine years, you know, my career hasn't been perfect. When you start seeing a downward trend at a company, you start noticing they're slapping Band-Aids on maintenance instead of permanent fixes. Maybe the company's not doing well financially and they can't afford those permanent fixes. That's the time to say, you know what? It's time to move on. This place just isn't safe anymore. Uh, If you find yourself in a toxic work environment where you're afraid to approach management about concerns... That's also a time to say, you know what, it's time for me to walk away. And, you know, Jeff, that's, that's what you did. And that's amazing that you had the strength to do that. Yeah. But well, it's cool you've we'll taken the sum of all your experiences and are pulling that back into the community for people that don't have the same amount of time as you do. People that are trying to get in and look at these things like, oh, this is a red flag because I, I heard Diane talk about it, you know. Sure. And I think that's Jeff and I try and do the same thing on our side. You know, yeah. uh, when we were trying to get in, there's, there's really no way to learn about the industry outside of actually being there and doing it. Um, there was a, a couple guys that were teaching courses like Jack Shanley, who, you know, did an excellent job, 
very pl- applicable to what we're doing. But outside of that course, there's nothing really you could find that would help you uh, be more prepared or give you some insight as to what it, what it meant to do the job. I found a blog when, when I was looking at it, when I first became a, you know, police officer, I was like, okay, you know, and I selected Riverside because I knew that Riverside trained its own pilots. So, you know, I applied there. I was lucky enough to get hired there. And then once I got on, you know, I went on to this great thing called Google, if you've never heard of it. (laughs) And I typed in like police helicopter pilot and this guy's blog popped up and he, you know, of course it was before podcasts. It was before, you know, Facebook and all this stuff. So I went on his po- on his blog and I started reading his, and he was a, a pilot for San Diego County Sheriff's Department. And he had talked about like, you know, the process of how to get into, you know, being a police pilot. And I read every blog entry that he had. And, you know, that kind of helped me kind of pave the way to like go out and introduce myself to the guys in the air unit because most aviation units were going to be located in an airport. We're not going to be, you know, right there at the police stations or, you know, uh, occasionally we'd show up to roll calls and guys would see our faces, but you know, nine times out of 10, every night you were interacting with the police helicopter when you're a patrol officer, but you never even knew who these guys were, what they look like or anything. Um, and so I, kind of took it, this advice and said, well, I need to introduce myself to these guys and, you know, kind of slowly kind of charted my way into the aviation unit. And, um, you know, I know one of the questions that you, we had talked about was, uh, you know, kind of the process and, uh, you know, why, you know, guys, and I know there's kind of a, I guess, a, a stigma about law enforcement aviation because, you know, people are like, oh, well, they just take any old cop and make him a pilot. And yeah, we do, but there's a process and there's a reason for it. And, you know, we take a guy that like at my department, it was a minimum of five years in patrol. So you had to be a patrol officer for a minimum of five years before you could be selected to the, to be a, a pilot in the aviation unit. Um, we did have, which is what I started out as, is a, a relief uh, tactical flight officer and on our podcast, we talk about it a lot, but honestly, the hardest job in that helicopter is being the tactical flight officer. And that's the guy that's going to be talking on the radios, running the camera systems and doing all this stuff while we're in flight. Uh, the pilot job is actually really easy, you know, as long as you get that person to where they need to be that scene. Um, again, there's an argument, well, why don't they take train police officers and make them pilots? And there are some agencies that do that. Um, usually it's like on a part-time basis or, or something like that. But what you see is the effectiveness of an, of, of a law enforcement air crew goes through the roof when you've had a guy that's already sat in, depending on what seat it is, I flew a 500. So the guy sitting in the right seat, uh, in that TFO seat, uh, managing a call, you know, working with the guys on the ground, requesting resources, doing all the things that you do as a tactical flight officer from overhead a scene, uh, and then take that person. Once they've been shown a competency to do that, if they can do that job, they can. I can guarantee you they can do the pilot side of it. Um, and so then taking them and transitioning them over to the pilot side, uh, and then once they're trained up as a pilot and you put them with another t- tactical flight officer... Uh, you have that experience from that seat over there. You know what that guy's going through. You know what he's doing. 
we talk a lot about crew coordination and yeah, crew uh, cohesion, you know, yeah, huge. absolutely. And crew coordination is a huge thing in airborne law enforcement. And so when, when you're looking over his shoulder and, you know, it's a little bit different in an airplane where the TFO is sitting in the back seat and you're not really looking over his shoulder and seeing everything that's going on and what he's dealing with. Um, you know, we had a little monitor up front. I could see what he was looking at on the camera, but, uh, you know, you're a second set of eyes, uh, you know, if, and we all know that there's times when you're flying, uh, especially if you're not in congested airspace and with a bunch of other aircraft around that you can divert some of your attention to what he's working on, on the ground. And now you're that second set of eyes. And if you're a trained police officer that understands suspect tactics, that understands, uh, you know, what may or may not be going on on the ground, you can help to a prompt your partner like, Hey, what, what about this? What about that? You know, you bounce ideas off each other and you become a very cohesive, a very effective air crew in, in that manner. Um, it doesn't take away from the, the piloting side of it. I mean, we're all, uh, and I would say that over the years, you know, yes, there used to be, you know, years where it was like, you know, it was the Wild West as law enforcement aviation, Part 91, the rules don't apply to us. You know, that that was maybe a mentality in, in the early days of airborne law enforcement, but that's completely gone now. Now, we train guys to be professional aviators. And like I said earlier, as uh, you know, that it's one of the battles that we always fight, but it's one of the battles that, you know, we 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 tend to win. It just takes time. But to get guys the training that they need, I mean, I've been through the mountain, you know, I flew down in the, the desert valley. I flew in Riverside. You know, yeah, we had some, some well, out here they would call them mountains, I, you know, in Tennessee, but <laughs> I would call them hills. Uh, you know, so we did have some terrain and, and power management, you know, things to consider even down uh, at, you know, right around sea level. Um, but, you know, I've been through the mountain flying course at Western Helicopters, which just made me a better pilot. You know, I've got my instrument rating, made me a better pilot. Uh, did we fly in the clouds in the helicopter? No. Um, in the airplane? Yes, we did. But, uh, you know, all those things that we do to train our guys to be competent aviators. And like John alluded to earlier, we don't take a guy and go, okay, hey, you got a wet commercial, like, you know, you're good to go. Um, you know, a lot of guys... We get them their commercial rating at somewhere around 200 hours, um, so to sp somewhere around two, 200, 250 hours. Uh, but then we still require them to fly with another pilot up until at least 500 hours. Uh, 500 hours is the, is the minimum before we'll cut loose a PIC. Now, you're talking about taking a guy, not somebody that went through, you know, uh, a private pilot course and then, you know, did some time building and then... No, you're talking about a guy that you took as a experienced law enforcement officer and now have put him in that environment for 500 hours flying. And then you're, you know, cutting him loose. And usually there's with restrictions, whether it's uh, weather restrictions, uh, day, you know, day restriction uh, only until they've got some more experience before you start adding on, you know, nighttime flying and, and stuff like that. Um, so I think airborne law enforcement, we do a good job of self-regulating our, you know, our, ourselves to uh, make sure that our folks are trained up, that we're putting out professional aviators and, and then, you know, maintaining that. And you're talking about a guy that gets 500 hours over the course of, you know, a year or two, um, because they're, they're flying, 
you know, pretty much every day and usually several hours a day. And they're flying with an experienced aviator uh, that's running, you know, doing the TFO stuff while they're doing the flying and keeping an eye on them. Uh, so that by the time they get to that point where we cut them loose as a pilot in command and, and say, hey, you can go out and fly with a non-rated, you know, TFO, uh, they're ready for that. And, you know, th- they've got the skills to do that. Um, and again, most agencies, especially agencies that are doing more technical stuff like hoist rescue or long line or, or whatever they're doing, that's going to come later. That's not at that 500 hour mark. We're not just cutting guys loose and going have at it. There's going to be, you know, training gates that they're going to still have to go through to get to those points where they're trained up in those, those mission tasks. So, um, I think it's kind of a misnomer when, when folks are, you know, upset that, Hey, they're just taking a regular old, you know, police officer and training them up. Uh, the, the industry does a very good job of, of, uh, preparing guys for that, for that role. So, um, it isn't the wild west anymore. So a lot of that is, I think, um, you know, kind of, uh, I guess it's misplaced, you know, anger, I guess, because again, and I get it, you know, someone like you that goes through all of this, you know, feast or famine trying to, you know, get your hours (laughs) and, and, you know, hopscotching across the country. Yes. We've been very blessed in the fact that as, you know, law enforcement aviators, we didn't have to do that. We were able to kind of stay at home, go home every night, you know, not have to move. Um, but I think there's a price to pay because you spend, you know, as many as five years or more yeah, on you put in your time as a, as a street officer. But again, uh, the job kind of demands that because guess what? When you're up in the air, you know, those guys that are down on the ground, they want that experience. They want guys that understand what it is that they're going through, what they need, because a lot of times, and, and John can speak to this as well, uh, you know, we're getting on scene sometimes before the ground units. Uh, a lot of times, many times before the supervisors get there. And if it's a critical incident, officer involved shooting, something that's, you know, a major event that's going on in, in on that scene, they're relying on us as kind of the quasi, you know, incident commander until enough resources get there. And so you have to have that experience. And when you've got two guys up there that have that experience, it just makes it so much more effective and makes it, uh, you know, something that I think that whatever the community is, whether it's a city or a county, um, you know, they spend a lot of money to put that aircraft up in the air and you want to have that experience there to provide it to, for the folks on the ground. I mean, it's just like how you don't want to have a leader in place that doesn't know anything about aviation or who isn't a pilot telling you what to do. And I guess it's kind of the same thing where you don't want a pilot up there who's never done law enforcement before, you know, overseeing things from above. Uh, I listened to that uh, podcast you did with David Callen, who's somebody I know. <laughs> I love that guy. He's awesome. Yeah, he's really cool. Yeah, back when I lived in Vegas. I was pulling a Jose then and I wasn't there. <laughs> What's that? I said I was pulling a Jose and I wasn't there for that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. he was super cool. I um, At the time, Las Vegas PD was actually trying to put together a civilian program for the 145. Because they were running into an issue where they didn't have qualified enough pilots to get into the 145. Because they had too little time for insurance purposes, I think it was, to to hop into it. 
or, or the experience to do the hoist missions that they were doing. Cause they did a lot of search and rescue out there, especially like Mount Charleston, Red Rocks and area yeah. out in Las Vegas. And, uh, but yeah, he was super nice. He, uh, let me come into the hangar and he showed me all the equipment and talked to me about what they were trying to do. And really nice that when people in the industry, again, when you reach out to people to, you know, help you out, like, Hey, I'm really interested in wanting to maybe do what you, you guys are doing. And they're like, yeah, come on in, <laughs> you know, yeah. let me show you the equipment. It was such a nice hangar. It was like pristine, pristine and it was a brand new 145 that they had and they had a couple of md 500s and stuff so that, that was really cool to get yeah, to do see an that. excellent job their, their mission profile is really cool their equipment's really nice yeah um but speaking of what you said i feel like aviation in general uh everyone's very supportive like you said mm-hmm. if you reach out to somebody very uh rarely i think will you get someone to be like yeah i'm too good for you uh, although i will say it did have i've Pretty much when I reach out to somebody on a podcast, for a podcast, they're like, oh, yeah, it'd be cool to be on a podcast because they want to talk about their experience and help those below them. There was a there was a fire pilot, and I won't say more than that. It was like pretty much we're – I'm not doing that. It's, I'm, I'm above that. You guys are below me. But but anyways, going back to what you're saying, I think it's really cool. As an industry, everyone's really helpful. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's neat to see. Do you think that there's a real benefit to having a civilian program where maybe they could hire pilots with higher time but no law enforcement experience? I don't think people understand either, like, you know, the the environment that we're flying in. You know, uh, most agencies, I know John's, uh, you know, mine, you know, you're monitoring like up to like six different law enforcement radios while you're flying in addition to, you know, your aviation frequencies and stuff. So, uh, when you get into, say, a, a multi-jurisdictional pursuit where it starts, you know, with maybe your agency and then it gets onto the highway or the freeway and, you know, now the highway patrol is involved and then it gets off into another jurisdiction. Um, there's a lot of times where, uh, again, you know, yes, can a can a commercial helicopter pilot fly the helicopter? Of course they can. But there's a lot of times where the TFO is talking on one frequency. And if the pilot's able to, because there's no other air, you know, traffic, there's no other airspace, you know, issues, uh, not having to talk to anybody else on the radios, they'll switch over and talk on another allied agency frequency and give updates as to where this pursuit is and, and, you know, try and coordinate maybe a handoff between the agencies and stuff like that. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are going on in that cockpit that maybe a civilian pilot wouldn't be able to do because you're not going to understand the radio lingo and how to broadcast a pursuit over time. I think civilian pilots could, obviously they could learn it. It's not rocket science. I mean, for crying out loud, I, I did it. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, having that, you know, knowledge and, and being able to, you know, jump on those radios and, and to help out in those situations, I think is, is the value of having, you know, a trained law enforcement officer in that pilot seat. Um, so I, I just think that uh, a lot of times it's, you know, the, the, the comments that you see on, you know, the internet or, you know, helicopter pages, whatever, um, I think are a lot of times is just uneducated, you know, people not understanding really what we do and, and how we do it. Um, Most so. negativity comes from misinformation. Jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> Jealousy, uneducation, sure. miseducation, you know, people right. just don't know what they're talking about and yeah. they just don't know what else to do but to shine negativity yeah, on other people. It's a super but, 
you know, patrol work in general, just flying around doing patrol work, that's super mundane, easy. You know, it's like being a, a tour helicopter pilot. You know, you're just kind of flying along. It's I'm, the the dynamic environments that we find ourselves in when we're dealing with, you know, especially in Southern California, when you're dealing with a pursuit and now you've got, you know, pesky ENG pilots all around you. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. no. And, and, it's you know, we, 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 we integrated very well. And again, there's this really cool thing called Facebook and, you know, there's a lot of guys like, um, you know, Marcos Ruiz and, uh, you know, um, Brennan Riley and guys that, you know, flew, hey. you know, ENG know. work. That, both of yeah. them, they're friends of mine. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we've become friends and, you know, I, well, I've done training with Marco. So out at, you know, California aviation doing my, uh, some of my add on ratings and stuff for the fixed wing stuff years ago. But, uh, you know, and Brennan, you know, so guys that we would chat with on, on the air to air and, you know, coordinate a, pursuit to where, you know, they're taking over kind of the air boss, you know, job of letting us work down low and, and work what we've got to do and, and coordinate, you know, with our guys on the ground and it just focus on what we're doing down low and they're handling, you know, calling us through Ontario's airspace or whoever's airspace as, as a gaggle. And, you know, so, um, you know, it's a, it's a really, I think it's a really cool dynamic environment that we work in. And then again, we work really well with, with all the other players like the ENG guys and stuff. Cause we know that y'all have a job to do and you want to get your shots and, and, you know, we're more than willing to help out with that as long as we can do our job and, mm -hmm. and uh, everybody gets along well. I only got to fly a critical oh, distance that we're a part of. Um, they evolve so fast, you know, uh, having the experience as a patrol officer on the ground and then also as a tactical flight officer in the other seat, then becoming a pilot allows, allows you to see what's happening on the ground, seeing what those guys need, as well as seeing what your partner as a TFO needs and just doing it in a critical situation. If you're waiting for the TFO to tell you, Hey, I need to see this. It's too late. The effective pilot is going to recognize those things and put his TFO in a position to do just that or hop on the radio, like Jeff said, as you're getting into a new jurisdiction and requesting assistance for whatever the thing is. So it's very dynamic. Um, it's very fast evolving. So I think the the effectiveness of, of the crews is relying upon experience in law enforcement, which is very unique to aviation, you know. Yeah, I mean, when you first get out of flight school, and if, if you're going to be a flight instructor, you're a 300-hour pilot trying to train a brand new pilot yeah, <laughs> shooting auto road. The guy from killing you. Yeah, shooting. <laughs> I had to save my own life every single day <laughs> for like two years. <laughs> You've got someone in the other seat trying to kill you every day, not trying to help you. So, <laughs> you know, you're shooting autos with someone who's never shot an auto before. And yeah, it's actually... It's a pretty risky environment too. So no matter how you swing it, when you're first starting out, you're going to be operating in high risk environments when you have barely left training or barely really know what to do. And you kind of just have to learn along the way and try to be the safest pilot and make the best decisions that you can. But you're kind of thrown in, thrown into it right off the bat. When I was fairly new, I, I had done a lot of surveillance work as the observer, you know, as the TFO. And I was the guy that was training me, uh, Dave Mullins, he, he was the pilot, he was the surveillance pilot. So I'd go up, we'd be up at anywhere between six and, you know, 9,000 feet doing surveillance work. 
And so he calls me one day and he's like, it's like a Sunday. And he's like, Hey, you want to do the surveillance as the PIC? And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to do the surveillance. And he's like, it's an easy one. You're going to be in San Bernardino. You know, it'll be no problem. And uh, so I said, okay. And he's like, I'm going to send, you know, Jerry, one of our new guys out as my uh, observer TFO. So I said, okay. So no sooner we get like, we check in with the guys on the ground as we're, you know, departing Riverside, flying towards San Bernardino, climbing up to altitude. And I'm like, okay, we're going to be out here. And, you know, uh, Ontario approaches airspace. It'll be easy. No, no big deal. Um, you know, I'm on with them. And, and then the guys on the ground were like, Hey, we're, we're westbound on the 10. And of course in a surveillance, you don't know where you're going to end up. Like that's all kind of part of the, I guess the allure of, of doing surveillance work. And so we're westbound on the 10 and we pass the 15 and we just keep going and we keep going. And now I'm starting to sweat it. Cause I'm like, dude, we're getting close to the Bravo of LAX. And, you know, and of course I'm a pilot. I, I know what to do, but it's that first time of like, this is, I'm the guy in, in the seat. Like I've done these surveillances over the Bravo during a presidential TFR before. Like this isn't, this is easy. This is nothing. But the first time I'm by myself as the PIC doing that, I was like, you know, holy crap. Like, you know, yeah. Requesting a Bravo clearance. And then of course, you know, SoCal's always like, well, you know, where are you heading to? Like, I don't know if I knew that. I wouldn't have to do this job. But uh, you know, they give me like a clearance roulette. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, next thing I know, we're over the final approach of LAX at, you know, eight or 9,000 feet and, you know, orbiting this, you know, surveillance. And I think it was a, hu- it was a huge confidence boost because a, I didn't get a phone number to call after <laughs> it's always cause for so celebration. That was, that was actually the first thing Dave asked me. He's like, did you, did they give you a phone number to call? And I was like, no, he's like, okay, you did a good Sweet, job. You did it. Did but, something right. Uh, and speaking to what John said, like, we don't know what we're going to do when we take off. We don't know where we're going to end up. And so I think that's kind of, you know, even as an EMS pilot, like I generally know, like I'm going to fly to this, you know, whether it's a scene or I'm going to a, a hospital to pick up a patient and I'm going to take him to this hospital. Like I kind of know ahead of time what I'm doing, but in airborne law enforcement, you take off and you don't know, you know, it's like, you know, you don't know what's going to happen and where you're going to end up at. And, and, uh, uh, but you know, it was a huge boost of confidence for me to do that mission, you know, but I had observed it from the TFO seat and kind of seen how he did things. And again, you know, we, we should always be um, looking towards those mentors, the, the people that, you know, uh, whether it's a CFI or, or a senior pilot that we're, you know, that we've trained with. And then when we get to that point as that senior guy, as that CFI or, or, you know, mentor is to pass that down to the next generation, because that's how we all learn. That's how we all bring each other up. And I think that's one of the things that I've loved about aviation is that that's what we do for each other. And, you know, I was able to do that before I left and, and mentor some guys, you know, in my unit. And, uh, you know, there's, I don't think there's any better job satisfaction than, than seeing somebody else that comes up behind you succeed in, in, in that career field. I think now there's an advantage because there is a pilot shortage that you can be pickier about who you work for as long as you know what you're looking for and know the red flags in companies and actually talk to people who work for the companies as well. I think a common theme, Diane, is what you brought up is, you know, uh, 
you had kind of tied into it's a leadership issue and you know there's there's some companies and some operators out there uh, whether it's government or civilian that are doing things absolutely right and there's others that that struggle with that all the other things going to making a decision on a career or to on an employer is the culture of that operator mm-hmm. uh, what what is the culture and i think leadership I think my, is my biggest tip for anybody getting into the industry is to use your build your network in a way that allows you to to dig on those things you know mm-hmm. get some inside information from the not the not the people that are interviewing you but from the pilots that are doing the job you sure. know because they're going to be the ones that'll tell you like no don't come yeah. here you know or that's this is awesome you know so build that network for sure the thing also with this industry is that some companies ebb and flow with going through hard times and then going through really good times, going through times where the FAA is like, hey, you need to get your stuff together. And then they do and they revamp their programs and then they're great places to work or companies that didn't have an SMS program, which all of a sudden they hired on a safety manager and boom, they have a safety management system. So I feel like the quality of a company is not necessarily judged by their past, but what they're currently doing. Cause you can find really good companies who've had really bad things happen to them in the past, but now they're doing great because something bad happened and they had to change. Yeah. Right. So it's hard sometimes cause you never know where the company is. If you Google them and then you see something that happened 10 years ago, you know, that management has changed. Their system has probably changed. So it's really important to do current research and to talk to the pilots who are currently working there. And hopefully they'll give yeah. you the honest to God truth of, yes, I think this place is a I great think a place. A perfect example is where I work at now, you know, air evac, uh, you know, some people, you know, you talk to people in the industry, they'd call it scare evac, you know, back in the day. Um, you know, I think now, and you said it earlier, you know, policies are written in blood, you know, regulations are written in blood. Um, you know, our company had uh, losses and, you know, crews that were killed in, you know, inadvertent IMC accidents and stuff like that. The company invested, you know, millions and millions of dollars into uh, putting in glass cockpits and all of our aircraft, putting in autopilots and all of our aircraft and knock on wood. But since they've done that, we haven't experienced any, you know, fatal incidents since then. And, you know, for me, that was a huge you know, green flag to, Hey, I'm going to air evac. Um, you know, I went out and, and went to a base, uh, before I got hired and introduced myself to the crew and talked to the pilot there. And that's another thing that people should do is, you know, go. And, and I did it kind of with no notice, like showed up and said, Hey, I, I want to know the real deal and talk to the pilot there and got a, I had a huge, you know, warm and fuzzy when I left there is, Hey, this is the place I want to work, the culture of the company, the, the crews, um, and the, the safety culture that was there. And then seeing the investments that they've made in the aircraft and the equipment and the training, you know, going to inadvertent IMC training every three months, you know, going to the simulator and, and running through, you know, inadvertent IMC, uh, uh scenarios. And, every three months. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, we go quarterly and then we go back obviously to the schoolhouse once a year up in St. Louis and you know go through our 135 check ride and all that stuff. But uh to to see the what they've invested into 
the the safety of the company and and why we've had such a success rate, um, you know, mm-hmm. since they've you know taken those steps, uh, tells me that that's a company that not only values safety but values its people and sure. and puts those things in place to make sure that we have all the tools that we need to do to do our job and and do it you know successfully. Um, you know, it says a lot about a company. So you're absolutely right that there are operators out there that have, you know, hit those roadblocks and then have made the proper changes that they need to do to make themselves a, a top-notch, you know, operator. And, and, uh, so sometimes those, you know, the, those misnomers of, you know, Hey, this is not a good operator to go to is, is 100% incorrect. Sure. And I can speak to that personally. Well, you guys, I so much appreciate you coming on and sharing these two hours with me. Um, <laughs> Thank you, thanks for having us. Yeah, no, this has been so insight, like so insightful and uh, eye-opening into the world of law enforcement aviation. And your careers and your experiences are just so useful for the next generation of pilots who want to follow in a in the footsteps of a law enforcement pilot. And I think you gave some really good information. And I really appreciate you guys coming on and I hope you fly safe out there. We'll catch Thank you up for soon. what you're doing. And you know, we, we love your podcast. So yeah. We're big thanks. Fans. Um, I have a really long drive to Texas in like right. a week, so I'll get to kind of catch well, we'll up with you guys. We'll bore the tears out of you. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And it's not always, you know, law enforcement aviation. Yeah. We're, we're talking to other people as well. So Cool. Awesome. Well, Um, thanks, guys. Well, um, well, maybe we can make this like a regular thing. Yeah, we'd love it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. All right, all right, all right. Thanks for sticking around until the end of the episode. Make sure you check out the Hangar Z podcast found on all your major podcasting platforms. They have a lot of really interesting guests and topics for your listening pleasures. We touched on mental health a little bit at the beginning of the episode, and as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this industry is not really geared towards helping pilots who are battling with depression, anxiety, or substance abuse problems. It's really geared towards making pilots afraid to come forward to their AME when they actually need to seek help. And after doing a little bit of research, looking at the NBAA website, uh, I found an article that really touches on this subject a lot. And it seems as though the um, ARC, which is the Pilot Fitness Aviation Rulemaking Committee, has been working with AMEs regarding assessing and treating pilots with mental health, health issues, which is one of their key goals here. And uh, they really are working towards restructuring the basic curricula for AMEs for early pilot evaluation and intervention, and also to help create a safe, supportive, and penalty-free environment for pilots so that it creates a safe space for pilot disclosure. And I'm not exactly sure if we're there yet, but I wanted to give some resources for you guys at home, a couple of companies that popped up to help with this situation. Well, number one, if you are battling with depression and you're in a critical situation, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 
1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. And there were a couple of companies, like I mentioned, the Mindful Aviator, mindfulaviator.com. It's a mindfulness-based resilience training for stress management, particularly geared towards pilots and meditation. The lifteffect.com lifteffect.com, that's L-I-F-T-A-F-F-E-C-T.com, offers counseling and consultation and coaching services that can confidentially address pilot concerns. Hopefully these resources will help you guys at home. Just know you're not alone. We love you. We're in this industry together and we need to be there to support each other. Have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your day and we'll catch you next time on the Forever on the Fly podcast. Bye. Bye.